Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio, George Penny. He has been an institution here in Bloomington for, dare I say it, George, what, 30 years? 30 years, yes. George Penny, a decorated director, choreographer, specialist in musical theater, Tony Award nominee, Emmy Award winner. You're big stuff. Well, you just called me an institution, so I guess that foundation is pretty deep. I'm not sure. Now, George, you're in town because you've got a big show going on right now. It started on November 30th over at uh, the Bloomington Playwrights Project. That is Tuning In. That runs through December 15th. Now, uh, as I understand it, this show, you're directing it. Yes. Did you choreograph it? I directed and choreographed it with uh, an associate, uh, Nathan Middleman, who has done all the choreography for all the tap numbers. That's a lot of work. That is a whole lot of work. This uh, production, it's a musical. Yes. It deals with senior citizens, a community radio station, and a corporate takeover First of all, it's based on a true story. Huh. Yes, uh, uh, a small community out of out, just outside of Cincinnati, a retirement community, and there was a radio station there, and it attracted old vaudevillians, show people from the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and it was an outlet for them to continue their art. So it, they really didn't go into retirement. They went into a showbiz sort of home. <laughs> But, of course, the radio station wasn't making any money. Yeah. And corporate, uh, the owners of the retirement community came in and forced the manager out because they wanted to take over the station themselves in order to generate profits. So Again, was, this is a real story. This is a real story. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm not going to tip off the ending about Don't. this. Don't. But what's also nice about this story is it goes a little bit further and it explores the generational gap between uh, college students and people in their 70s and 80s. Uh, we've included students from Otterbein College, from a uh, university, uh, from the Department of Theater, and they're there to record the living histories of the, of the residents there. And so it's more, and then through the story and they join in this fight to save the radio station, they learn so much more about each other and they all of them grow by learning from each other and I think what's also really important about this in a retirement community because uh, people are very fearful of retirement communities mm -hmm. and I think the main word is dignity ah. that people have a sense they may lose their dignity and the presence of who they are so this is also another running theme that runs through it that you can still be a person and so that, that was the reason why they wanted to save this radio station not only as an outlet to perform, but also to save their dignity, to save their presence of mind of who I am and I still can contribute to society. Are older folks kicking up their heels in this? Oh, they sure are. No kidding. How? <laughs> don't say who it is, no. but who's the oldest person in the cast? I won't say who it is, but... Um, there are there are some in their 60s and we have others playing from i think our youngest older resident is around 50. now wait a minute when i try to get up out of my chair i hear noises it's it's more energy than it would take to lift off the atlas rocket from the launching pad for gosh sakes how do you get these people who are in their 60s 
to dance. Oh, to me, the 60s is the new middle age. <laughs> so I think you would say that because you're in that bracket. <laughs> well, of course, of course. It's also see, you're looking at a cast. Here are the given circumstances of a cast. This is what a cast can do. So it's really knowing the people you are working with and molding and shaping movement ideas that can grow out of them. No, this is not Baryshnikov doing double tours in the air or something. <laughs> These are simple kicks, simple looks, a gesture here, a gesture there, moving seductively or moving like an old vaudevillian. One of your mantras as a teacher, and by the way, I constantly hear you described or see you in print described as a beloved teacher, and I've got to find out what the heck that means. In any case, one of your mantras is listening. Yes. I listen. Quote from you, if there's a secret to my success, it's because I listen. Boy, do I listen. Yes. So you're listening to these people to find out what they can do. Yes, and what they also can contribute. Many times, this is a workshop production. Um, and there will be, frankly, a major rewrite after this before it will continue on to the uh, Glens Falls in New York in mm -hmm. the summer of 2020. So working through it and having it on its feet, I'm seeing all sorts of things. And a lot of times the actors who are playing the role have a, obviously a very close relationship to that role, and they have lots of ideas. So I'm listening to that. But actually, whenever I go into a room and I'm just not listening with my ears, I'm listening with my eyes, I'm sensing the room, I'm sensing the energy, I'm sensing what's being sent out, what I'm giving back, how people react to that. Teaching at IU to my last semester, I always get stage fright before I go into my first, go into the class for the first day. You're kidding. No, seriously. Um, because I mean, well, what's going to be the make of it? I'll, even if I know them, what are, what are their expectations? What do they want by the end of the semester? So I go in and I watch and I listen to them. I see how they're interacting with each other. When I'm talking and, and maybe asking questions or when they're asking questions, I'm really listening to figure out the dynamic of the room, what is going on with each other so I can create an environment that's really conducive to learning. Indiana University opened up such a world for me, not only educationally, but professionally as well. I had a firm foot in both sides of that, which is highly unusual. I mean, Indiana University is a research one institution, and they realize that if they allow a professor to fulfill their potential, it, they're going to fulfill the university's potential. Because you were given leaves of absence on any number of occasions yes. to do work, big shows, mm -hmm. nationally, internationally. Yes, I remember the first time I went to London, we had taken blast to London to the uh, Palladium, and there we had a cast of 82, and this is a huge, huge deal. And they arranged for my uh, classes to be covered. They sent me with full support saying, go, do, build, grow. And I learned so much from that experience on so many different levels working with unions, not, not only just the stage work, but working in a professional theater in London that I could then come back to the classroom and talk about what's really going on out there other than supposing what's going on out there. So it's really living the whole thing that I'm going to teach. Now, you mentioned Blast. Mm -hmm. That was a production 
which got you nominated for a Tony Award. It got you, you won an Emmy Award for the PBS broadcast of that production. What was Blast all about? Blast, <laughs> that's quite a story. Mm. Well, it all started on the football field uh, with Drum and Bugle Corps. And what was really interesting, it started with Star of Indiana, and a good friend of mine, I said, George, have you ever seen a drum and bugle corps? And I said, not really. And he said, you've got to see this thing. So we went out to the stadium here at IU, and I saw the competition. It was their actually uh, Star of Indiana's last season of competing. Uh -huh. And they did Medea. And I was blown away by just the magnitude of this production and the dramatic, uh, for me, the dramatic action in this production. I thought, this is incredible. Musicianship that's through the roof, everyone's flying around this field and dancing, the percussion's going this way and that way. Choreography. Choreography. And interestingly enough, Bill Cook happened to see um, my production of Anything Goes. And he thought, you know, that George Penny might be helpful for our um, brass theater because they had made the choice to now take it off the football field and put it into stadiums. Huh. Bill Cook uh, called and said, would you have lunch and meet the artistic director, Jim Mason, which I did, and it became a wonderful fit. I was so excited, and then I, that whole association literally came from Bill Cook seeing Anything Goes, um, and then it grew into this wonderful thing. And one of my main jobs was helping being a liaison between the literally the football field going into a stadium and then making this a, a theatrical event with lights, form, shape, which then eventually led to a stint down in Branson, Missouri at their, I was the, I think it was the Palace, Palace Theater down there was their largest theater. And we had, oh gosh, I think the cast was still around 110 or something. Hmm. It's a big stage. Uh, and the old expression says, you either start your career in Branson or end your career in Branson. <laughs> <laughs> so this opened up a whole new door. Incredible. And uh, my colleagues too. How long ago is this, by the way? Oh, I, oh uh, 19... 98 or so. Okay, about 20 years ago. Yeah. And then my colleagues, um, John Vanderkoff and Jim Moore, my fellow choreographers that won the Emmy and were Tony-nominated Tony with me, uh, was just a wonderful fit because we worked so well together. We had all of our strengths. I was kind of the quirky guy. Jim Moore is a beautiful <laughs> ballet dancer and it's such an imaginative choreographer. John Vanderkoff is known, I mean, internationally for his... Um, ability to configure all the incredible drill with all these people flying around. And it's one thing to create a drill on the football field where people are massing, you know, missing each other by a foot or two, mm -hmm. and then put it on the stage where people are missing each other by an inch or two. Eek. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. So the three of us would create so many different things together. You go from doing something on a football stadium turf to doing this small, more intimate space yes. at the Bloomington Playwrights Project. How many people are on stage at any one time doing choreographed moves? Um, there are 11. At, at one time? At one time. How do they stop from poking each other's eyes out? <laughs> they really like each other. Oh, I guess so. <laughs> um, frankly, I love 
tight-knit choreography. Oh. It's like watching a Swiss watch. There is another, uh, the finale of a South Side Rhythm is really where everyone comes on and is moving everything. But it's, again, it's choosing movements that are specific to the people that they can do well. And it's almost like putting together a mosaic or putting together a kaleidoscope where you have all these different shapes and forms. So how do they come and meld together for the audience eye to take it in and see something. And a lot of these moves, frankly, are very simple. I mean, frankly, I could choreograph on you right now. Oh, brother. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, if you, can walk and, if you can walk and you can talk, you can dance. Do you ever go out and dance just for fun for a night out? <laughs> you ever go out dancing? That's a great question, and it's rarely. <laughs> rarely. Um, well, where is there to dance anymore, well, for one? that's true. Unless you're 20 years old and, right. and doing ecstasy, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. If I would go out <laughs> on the club circuit, they'd be going, oh, <laughs> baby, what's grandfather doing out here? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> no, but you'd probably outdance them. Oh, <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Do you wish you could? Um, actually... I mean, I still dance, and I danced, oh gosh, um, frankly, I'm in shape, I'm okay, and I can still move around. But also, being the, um, the lead book writer on this yeah. with Tuning In, I'm starting to shift into other worlds I want to explore. Yeah. Um, I was always a doctor of musicals as we went along, and I would do this and that to help doctor a musical, but I never really wrote uh, the musical. For Blast, I would always do, I'd write the outlines and things, but I never wrote a book. And so when this opportunity came along, and also with Front Page Flow, um, I was one of the book writers on that. It opened up a whole new door, and I'm finding I'm really enjoying sitting at my laptop, looking out the picture window, and then in my head playing all these different characters, and then writing it down. And um, I'll sit there, I think oh, I'll spend a half hour on this scene or something, and three hours later, it will just pass uh, by in the blink of an eye. So at this point in my life, I'm thinking, you know, this is kind of nice. It's a little bit better than <laughs> kicking my leg over my head again. You directed and choreographed Front Page Flow? Correct. That ran this summer at the Adirondack Theater Festival in Glens Falls, New York, which also happens to be home of uh, BPP artistic director Chad Rabinovitz. Yes. You are going to be continuing the relationship there as well at the Adirondack. Yes. Yes. Um, we will be doing tuning in in the summer of 2020. After, after you work out some of the kinks here. Yes. Yes. You've been all over the world. You've been in big theaters. You've been in stadia. You've been all over. You've also been in tiny little junior high school gymnasium. Oh, yes. Yes, you, uh, after you uh, went to Illinois State University yes. for your undergrad work. I went through about uh, six majors <laughs> before I finally wound up um, in music education. So you got your bachelor's degree, and you became a teacher in junior and senior high school. You For about three years, you did that. You did productions in gymnasiums. I saw an anecdote where you actually made floodlights yeah, oh out goodness. of coffee cans. Yes. Uh, oh, my goodness. This takes me back. <laughs> I, it was Auburn, Illinois. It was a, t a small town of 3,000. And there was, oh gosh, I think about 150 in the high school and around 150 in the middle school. One year, half the students were in chorus. 
It was amazing. And fun. We had so much fun. We were going to put on a musical. <laughs> hey, Maybe, kids. It was like, you know, my daddy has a barn, my mom so costumes, <laughs> and away <laughs> we went. Unfortunately, one of the students had a uh, father owned the lumber yard, which was crucial. Oh, yeah. And literally, we had no lights, so I literally took coffee cans, put floodlights in them, wired them up, pointed them at the stage, and those were our lights to put on Anything Goes. It's our first <laughs> musical. <laughs> and I was teaching these kids to tap, and we, we had a grand time. At that time, you're a punk kid yourself. At oh, yes. that. You're in your 20s. Right? Oh, yes. Could you imagine yourself achieving the heights that you eventually would? Not a clue. I mean, not a clue. What was interesting, um, we had a great time there, but I always said, if you ever gave me a study hall, I'm out of here. And they gave me, there were cuts, and they gave me a study hall, and I put in my resignation that day. No kidding. Seriously, I finished out the year, and it was a good thing they gave me a study hall. Or, you know, I, I don't know, I may have still been at Auburn, which would have been great, but <laughs> um, I was t- it was ready for me to do other things. Then you went to Southern Illinois University where you got your MFA in theater. Mm -hmm. Then there was some New York activity. What went on over there? Well, after I got my MFA, what I really wanted, my passion is teaching. Yeah. Above all, I love to be in the classroom. I love working and learning. Education is a two-way street for me. And I knew with my MFA from Southern Illinois University, I was going to get a job anywhere. Um, and, and on the university level, I didn't have enough experience. And so I literally, frankly, I went to New York to have a New York address. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and I studied. And it was kind of one of those Sophie Choice things when it came down to it, because I was there a year. Um, I had studied combat. I studied in all the dance studios. And I was getting on, I had a great feed my face job. I sold theater tickets, Golden Pin Theater Ticket Agency. And I worked in the Hilton Hotel and the Plaza Hotel pushing theater tickets. It was a great job because I could see everything from Lincoln Center right down to the village for free. And then also a lot of times uh, rather wealthy patrons would come to my desk and go, oh, you know, we're just so tired tonight. Would you mind taking these uh, two center orchestra <laughs> seats to the Metropolitan Opera House tonight? I, I just need to go to bed. I go, oh, I think that would be okay. <laughs> so my education there in that year was phenomenal. You came to Indiana University in 1987, I believe. Yes. There wasn't even a musical theater program. No, no, there wasn't. So, but there were musical theater students. How did that work? That was really interesting. And I even came in and inherited several musical theater students is through the Individualized Major Program in the Uh, College of Arts and Sciences, which is just a brilliant, brilliant program. It's also a place where a lot of seeds were planted to grow. And walking into IU, I recognize the enormous talent and the enormous potential because all the cards are here. Great dance, great, great music, great, great, great theater. (laughs) And I just thought, oh my goodness, it's all here. And so for years, I would take two or three students a year that I thought had potential in musical theater, and we would put together a program absolutely tailored to their needs and what they want to do in the outside world. And we obviously had a number of very successful, Colin Donnell, one, uh, was graduated from the, from the IMP in musical theater. And so that eventually grew. 
And also out of that, I developed a lot of courses for musical theater, specifically for musical theater in that. And I think it was about 20 years later, we finally got a program, a BFA in musical theater. In the 10 years that we developed this program, it became nationally recognized, and our students work all over the world. We've constantly had uh, someone on Broadway ever since then, um, national, international tours. It's quite phenomenal what our students are doing out there. My guest this week, the beloved instructor of musical theater, Professor Emeritus, mm -hmm. George Pinney. You stepped away after the 2016-2017 school year from Indiana University. All those years, about 30 years, I keep on seeing the same descriptor in stories I read about you, beloved. Oh, gosh, you have put me on the spot. I'm I embarrassed. Um, I think it's a two-way street. I have a passion and absolute love for my students that always kept me going forward. And that was always the base of no matter what happened. And there were so many students in and out of my office, whether something was good or bad or indifferent, I always believed in my students. And then I always felt they believed in me. So we had a great, great working relationship to try to figure things out. Because I also believe that no two students learn alike. Uh -huh. Everyone is completely different. Everyone has to be approached differently. And that's where it comes back to listening. Uh, listening. Listening to understand where a student is coming from, what their background is, what they are going through. Coming out of high school into a university is a major step. And also what kind of, even down to the money, what kind of support do they have? How does that affect their life? Are they working a job to four in the morning, which many students ha have done in the past, then getting up at eight, surviving on three hours of sleep? So when that student comes into the classroom, I'm going to have to approach them a little bit differently right. than someone else. Um, I, of course, yeah. another teacher might say you'd better do this stuff no matter what's going on in your life because this is the way it oh, is. Yeah. Oh, I didn't say they weren't going to do the stuff. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> it might be just a way of going, a different way of going about it. There's a difference between musical theater and concert dance. I never even knew about this. Apparently, I'm going to find out from you. I choreograph for um, a lot of concert dance as well as musical theater. And this is also comes back where Martha Graham and Agnes DeMille, especially Martha Graham, is a big hero of mine in that all of her work was based in the human condition and commenting on the human condition and going forward with the human condition. Also in concert dance, especially contemporary, modern, um, can get into aesthetic. Movement, any movement, can be a dance. Mm -hmm. And it's the aesthetic of movement that can be appreciation of it. Just like in music, uh, many uh, composers will have a storyline through their music, or it's just the aesthetic of a feeling, mm. the aesthetic of an opening of a flower, or the aesthetic of, uh, of a sea waves rolling in. Um, the difference, and that's where the major difference, in, I believe, is in the aesthetic of movement of concert dance, where musical theater is firmly always ingrained in dramatic action. There needs to be a reason behind 
the movement. I mean, you can do a very fun, uh, let's say you can do a very fun tap dance. This is full of energy and ha cha 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 cha. But then when you wed that to dramatic action and a reason why, it be- then tap dancing becomes a language. Mm-hmm. Um, in Front Page Flow, we approached the choreography in that with tap being an actual language. And there was a number in that production in which they would talk about their uh, reason for being or uh, to being a reporter and what was the best way to get the story out to the public. And they'd make a statement, but then they'd tap about it. And so they would use the tap to emphasize what they were trying to say. Sounds like a typewriter. Yeah, well, well. you should mention that. <laughs> There's a whole other number where they were at typewriters tapping away. Speaking of the human condition, as you just did, what was Virus? Virus was uh, uh, a concert piece I did for uh, the Department of Theater Drama and Contemporary Dance. And Elizabeth Shea, who's just this wonderful, wonderful person and teacher, educator, she's head of the program uh, of dance within the Department of Theater Drama and Contemporary Dance. And she was always doing wild things, and I was always doing wild things, and I think we kind of inspired each other to push the envelope a lot, and she certainly inspired me. But this dance called Virus started actually with an exor- an acting exercise I did in my movement classes, hmm. in which um, there was a very pure movement, and then un- and it was had to do with if there was a group of sixteen, there would be four groups of four students in each group, and they do uh, this kind of running motion that was very specific and very uniform. Hmm. But unbeknownst to them, there was a virus in it. And so one student who no one knew it was, was infected. And they would work through it. When they got to the front of the line of this particular movement, they'd throw it, infecting that pod of people. Yeah, yeah. Then that student would attach itself to another group. They'd be going through the movement. When he gets to the head of the line, he would infect that group. So slowly, surely, sadly, the whole room died. Wow. This was also, obviously, it was developed out of uh, my relationship to the AIDS crisis. Yeah. And how things are infected. And yeah. But this is also kind of a global outlook. And that... Kept You're an amateur epidemiologist. <laughs> I think something like that, yes. <laughs> and so we, and actually, we did different versions of it. And in the classroom, we would do it. And for a while, we would do it on World's AIDS Day in different locations or invite people into the classroom. And then it was very specific to the students how that would develop. It was all based on the same exercise. And then eventually, it developed into a concert piece. And again, my friend John Vanderkoff did the sound score to it which was amazing in itself. Uh, and we would work together. I would choreograph. He'd come in and watch the choreography, and he would go away and then create the score to my choreography versus having a piece of music, and I would choreograph to the music. He would develop the soundscape to the choreography that was growing out of it. So the symbiotic relationship was so tight. Uh, really, really quite incredible. My guest this week director, choreographer, teacher, most importantly, mm-hmm. George Pinney. He's now directing and choreographing the current show running at the Bloomington Playwrights Project. That is tuning in. It's going to run through December 15th. George, thank you so much for being on Big Talk. Thank you for inviting me.